I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. On today's episode of View from the Big Chair, examining the cost to be the boss, we have as our guest Joe Briggs, who serves as a counsel for the National Football League Players Association and the Director of Government Relations. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have occupied many big chairs in your career. What skill has been the most important one you developed over this career journey? Making sure I understood how to talk to people. Uh, Talking to people is an underrated skill because it requires you to have a certain level of empathy as well as personality uh, and the ability to listen and learn to the people who you are speaking with. Um, But everybody doesn't have that skill, right? So no matter what job I've had, I've always tried to make sure that the person I was speaking to received as much or more respect from me than I expected from them. That's been one of the most important skills that I've learned along this journey. Tell our listeners how a young man from Central Florida got to be a football student athlete at Texas Christian University and now sits on its board of trustees. I mean, primarily you could blame my girlfriend for that in high school, right? Like she uh, uh, thought that I should play football so that I could get a Letterman's jacket um, uh, so that she could wear it. Uh, now there's a little bit more to that story, right? Like when I was eight years old, my mother told me that we wouldn't be able to afford college. She reminded me that she didn't make that much money and that I had to find a way to pay for it. What that meant to me was that I had to get the best grades possible because the only scholarship I knew about was academic. So I focused on academics for most of my scholastic career until I met my girlfriend. And she asked me why I never played sports. Well, the reason I never played sports until my senior year was because I was um, unfortunate enough to have an older brother who got hurt in every sport that he played. Got hit in the face with a pitch, baseball, broke his arm playing football. So by the time I came through, you combine the fact that my mom didn't make that much money and grandparents didn't make that much money, along with the medical costs of playing sports in their minds, and it just was a no-go for them. Uh, But by the time I got to my senior year, I convinced my mom to allow me to go out and play football, thinking that it would be another opportunity for me to explore if I could use that as leverage to pay for college. It turns out I was right. Um, I turned out to to be a pretty good athlete, Uh, was an all-state player in the state of Florida, got a bunch of offers to a bunch of different schools and chose TCU because it was the best fit for me. 
And how long have you been a member of the TCU Board of Trustees? Uh, this is year eight. So I've been on the Board of Trustees at TCU for eight uh, sessions, eight years, um, eight school terms. Um, TCU is a research two institution that has a little over 11,000 students. And those 11,000 students, um, 10,000 or so grad students, about a uh, thousand or so, I'm sorry, 10,000 uh, 10, undergraduate students and about a thousand grad students. Um, we try to do everything we can to make TCU a wonderful place to be. And what is your role as a trustee? My primary role is to provide guidance to the president of the university uh, on the things that may be necessary to, to keep and sustain the university uh, as a whole. Right? And one, of the, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about being a trustee is that you don't hire and fire the people that actually work on the campus. You only have uh, advisory authority over the president of the university. So um, the only person that you can actually hire and fire is the head of the university, or in our case, the chancellor. Um, so we, what do we do with that, right? Like we provide guidance on the direction of the university, where it should be going in the next year to five years to 10 years. And we also have the ability to provide you know, resources. Um, part of our um, jobs as trustees are to go out into the community and sell the university grow the endowment, make sure that this university has enough money to not only pay for the things they need to keep operations going, but also provide scholarships so that we can have a diverse class of students uh, come and attend the university, stay at the university, and finish at the university, which is a very key component. When we met, you were a special assistant to the president at Florida A&M University. How did you get right. in that role at such a young age? Yeah, so I um, I was hired by Dr. Fred Humphreys to be the special assistant and work with his university advancement staff as essentially his body man. Um, after I finished my scholastic career at TCU, uh, I was uh, thinking that I was going to go pro. I got into a car accident that ended my football career. And I had to figure out what I was going to do next. So first step was to get a job working at Texas Instruments as a logistics supervisor for about a year. And I realized like it was a bunch of fun, but I wasn't making a bunch of money. So I had to figure out how I could retool myself, get some more skills and come into my own as a person working in the world as I found it. Um, what that meant for me was going back to grad school. So Fred Humphreys, they recruited me out of high school for academics. And as a person who was familiar with him, and he was familiar with me, he was surprised to find that I had been working in corporate America. He uh, loved that I wanted to come back to Florida and for my graduate work. And he hired me so that I could help him understand some of the student issues that was going on at the time. Now, if you remember, this was the year 2000. Students were protesting in Tallahassee, Florida, because they thought, uh, new governor of the state of Florida had done some things around um, affirmative action. They didn't like it. And also those protests then spilled over into protests that were happening with the election later in the year uh, when Bush v. Gore happened and it was the Florida Supreme Court that had to decide on whether or not they would count all the ballots in the state from some of the election stuff that was happening. 
So he essentially needed someone to help him manage all of these rowdy students who had issues of grave concern while he was continuing to try to run the university. Uh, and that was my job. I could identify with the students. I spoke the language of corporate America, but also had the cultural awareness to break down for the president what he needed to do in order to help the students be successful in all the things that they were doing at the same time. Now, how did that experience prepare you for the rest of your career journey? Well, that experience allowed me again to, to gain more empathy for them. Um, there were a bunch of things that I had to learn about. Like I had to learn about the political system and like why they were fighting, what they were fighting against, how I could be most helpful to them. Then I had to learn about the student system and like how their student government worked. So it was another tool to put in my toolbox about like how to break things down to the smallest component and build them back up again so that when uh, a piece of those things that were being built up weren't working in the way that they should, we can figure out how to take that piece out, put another piece in, and make it work again in the way that it should. Uh, so that's what we did. Okay. Now, with a degree in business and your master's, why law school? So when we learned about the protests and all the things that were going on, most of the things that were happening were because there were allocations of funds that were either going to the wrong place or hadn't been placed in the places where it should, whether it was the... Um, whether it was the work that was happening on elections or it was the stuff that was happening around the protest around the um, student things that were happening on campus and affirmative action. Um, the lowest common denominator in all of it was that there was usually some funding issue that was tied to it or there was some legislation tied to it. So what that meant to me was that I needed to go talk to the lawyers at the university to try to figure it out. And then when we tried to have funding issues solved, I had to go talk to the lawyers about how we could go find the money. And then when we had laws that needed to get passed, I had to go talk to the lawyers about like how the laws could get passed. So to me, that all meant what? Everything has to go through the lawyers. Why am I talking to all the lawyers when I already have a graduate degree in public policy and I have an undergraduate degree in business and I understand all this stuff, but I still got to go talk to lawyers before anything else can get done. All right, then I need to go be a lawyer because I need to know what they're telling me is the right thing and not the wrong thing. And I need to know like what makes them so special that everybody has to talk to them before they can get anything done. And that was why I decided to go to law school. As a law student, you held national positions within the National Black Law Students Association. How did you manage your time to be so successful at so many different things? Law school was fun. Let me say that again. Law school was fun, right? Managing the national position on the National Black Law Students Association, which I held for two years, right? Like I was national treasurer in the first year and then national attorney general the second year was fun because it was mission driven. All these things can get done if you treat them like a job, right? Like I've always been a person who's worked multiple jobs, have been since I was a teenager when I was hustling candy <laughs> during school hours and then working at McDonald's at night. So when I get to law school, right? Like I had already been working at FAMU and then at night times and on the weekends, I was doing non-linear video editing and website development um, so that I could pay for grad school. 
So when I get to law school, I'm not working because your first year of law school, you can't work. So I have all this excess energy that I need to do. Now, to be fair, I was still building websites and doing nonlinear video editing on the side, but that wasn't a real job, right? So I had to go pick up this National Black Law Students Association position because it gave me something else to do with my brain that wasn't 100% focused on being in law school. Um, and it was an interesting challenge when we started that campaign, uh, the National Black Law Students Association needed some money, right? Like they had some paperwork that hadn't been filed. We had some bills that hadn't really been taken care of in the way that they should have. Uh, and that all left us with a big mission ahead of us if we believed in the future of the organization. So as the treasurer, I got together with our national board chair, who was a good friend of mine, Christopher Chestnut, uh, and another friend of mine, Claude L. Pressa, who was our corporate uh, development person on our board. Um, we got together and came up with a plan so that we could make sure the National Black Law Students Association would be solvent, would have all their paperwork filed in a proper manner, and that we would leave enough money in the bank to pay for the next convention after we were done because we wanted to make everybody understand the importance of the National Black Law Students Association. Another big chair that you occupied was as a legal fellow for the United States Senate. How did you yeah. get through that competitive process and what did it teach you? Yeah, so, you know, the, the process of being the National Attorney General and the National, Bar, National Black Law Students Association was actually very helpful in getting a fellowship. Um, as the National Attorney General, we had to finish out the process of filing, um, filing uh, an amicus brief for the United States Supreme Court, uh, Abigail Fisher versus the uh, University of Texas. Uh, and the governor of Texas at the, at the time, that it was a case around whether or not um, there should be qualifications such as affirmative action used in the admissions process in a law school. Um, so going through that process of writing and reading and in revising and editing and being the national attorney general and having to go around and speak about the importance of this case. And aside, uh, aside that, we were also considering filing an amicus brief in a number of cases dealing with um, tasers. That helped me sharpen my skills, my writing skills, my oratory skills, so that when I was approached by my law school, um, at the time to apply for a fellowship in the United States Senate, it made sense to me um, because I, would all, I was already doing the work. One of the pieces of the work that I did around tasers was whether or not the executive at the police department or whatever uh, law enforcement agency had the authority to do whatever they were doing uh, by using tasers in the way that they were using them. Um, that led to me doing more work and more research into executive authority. Uh, and uh, I wrote a paper uh, for our law review, uh, a note for law review on the use of executive authority. And when that got reviewed by one of my professors, he sent it into this contest to become a legal fellow and I had to fill out the rest of the application. He said it would be perfect and actually turned out to be a pretty interesting time, right? The Supreme Court was hearing two cases that had been brought before it by people in Guantanamo Bay about whether the president of the United States at the time had exceeded his executive authority. 
So the senator brought me in as a subject matter expert on executive authority, the use of military force, and whether or not uh, you can hold enemy combatants indefinitely without ever having to bring them before court uh, for habeas corpus review. So that's how I ended up in the fellowship. Um, then when I got there, I used it as an opportunity to also do some work with the banking committee because it all goes back to money, right? So uh, that was that opportunity. Now, for our non-lawyers who are listening, tell them what an amicus brief is. Uh, amicus brief is a, a brief that's friendly to the court, meaning you have you don't have standing before the court. You're not a party to whatever the suit is that's happening before the court. But what you are doing is filing what's called an amicus brief to say, I believe this is the way the court should at least consider or look at this issue. Um, and as such, you usually join together with other organizations that have uh, either a supporting position or an opposition to one of the positions that's being taken by the parties in the case. For us, we filed um, in opposition of the position that was being taken by uh, the people who were saying that quotas and admissions were a bad thing and should be stripped away from any form of the process. Tell our listeners the services that are offered by the NFL Players Association. Sure. What we've done at the NFLPA is set up a suite of services, not just for the uh, players uh, to use um, while they're in their NFL career, but also so that they could have services after their careers are done. That includes uh, treatment for injuries that they sustain, lawyers that represent them in case they get in trouble uh, on the field or with their teams, meaning there's something that they've been disciplined for by the NFL or by a club that they're in co under contract with. Uh, we also do a bunch of other stuff. And what is your role within the Players Association? So I, I do a little bit of everything, right? So uh, primarily I'm a labor lawyer. Uh, so I would be the lawyer of record or counsel to the player in any dispute with his club or with the National Football League. I would also represent them as essentially a public defender, uh, I guess would be the closest analogy uh, outside of the sports context. I would be their defense counsel uh, representing them in whatever lawsuit or disciplinary case is brought against them by the NFL that they would try to prosecute against them. In addition to that, I also manage our entire government relations portfolio. That means when a question comes up from a member of Congress or state legislature, I'm usually Johnny on the spot to have to answer that. Like this week, for instance, um, I've spent a bunch of time in Jefferson City, Missouri, talking about gambling regulations, providing advice and counsel on how gambling regulations would affect players, not just in the NFL, but also in college and high school and other sports. So that's also a part of my job as well. Um, then I'm also the National Disaster Relief Coordinator. So like if there's a natural disaster that happens anywhere in the world, my job is to research how that will affect players, whether we have any players that are from that area, whether or not there's any government resources that our players can help direct or support going to the people who've been a part of that process of being involved in whatever that natural disaster is. So, yeah, uh, I'm also the chair of our Social Justice Task Force. So all of the social justice work that you've seen in the National Football League over the last five years um, since we started that uh, work, um, uh, making sure that that all also reflects the intent 
of the players, the desire of the players to make sure everybody's on the same page about what the, what the requests are. Now, Joe, you've seen a lot of people come and go at the NFLPA. What skill yep. sets do you feel contribute to longevity with a professional sports organization? Uh, the thing that contributes to longevity is making sure you take it seriously and giving world-class service every chance you get. So for me, world-class service looks like providing answers to questions when they're asked, not missing opportunities to get in front of players and, uh, and making sure that whatever you do is just as good as the things that they would do. Remember, I work for the 32 best people at their job in the world, right? Um, there are uh, 32 teams. For 32 quarterbacks, those 32 quarterbacks are the best 32 people in the world at doing the job of being a quarterback in the world, right? So as a lawyer for those people, I have to be one of the best lawyers in the world. Um, and I don't consider it bragging when I say, because I've been doing this now for 16 years, that I must be one of the best lawyers in the world to allow myself to stay in this position for that length of time. And what courses do you teach at Georgetown? So in my spare time, I teach, um, it depends on the semester, four different courses. I've developed uh, a business and finance course at Georgetown to talk about the money and how money moves through the world of sport. I've also um, created an, a sports ethics class at Georgetown uh, where we talk about ethical dilemmas that people and players may face in a sports career and how you can come to some resolution or conclusion, maybe even fix some of those ethical dilemmas. Um, there's also a sports law class, which breaks down contracts, negotiations, um, and what you should be looking for uh, in the world of sport, even if you're not a lawyer, so that you can make sure that you are protecting yourself and your client, regardless of which side of the table you sit on. And then finally, a sports leadership uh, and management class, uh, which I'm actually teaching this semester. Uh, that talks about how you can become a leader in an organization and how you can grow that leadership uh, in the people that are working for you and with you. And how do you incorporate your professional experiences into the teaching so that you're teaching more than just theory? Well, sure. I mean, I, I have real life and real world experiences that I usually try to incorporate or intertwine into the class and the lectures. I also invite players to come in to speak to the students. So quite frankly and quite often, you'll have professional football players or professional basketball players, maybe even I've had professional soccer and professional cyclists uh, come into the class, usually through electronic or virtual formats. And then they speak to the students about what it is that they need them to do uh, if they were working for them or if they were working for a team that they were participating in athletic events with. Um, that's helpful because in many instances, graduate students have never spent any time around athletes. Um, so they don't know what they don't know. Right. They don't know like what it is to be around an athlete. They don't know what it is to go through some of the situations that are completely outside of the realm of reality in a nine to five job. Uh, and if you've never participated in athletics, uh, and then you get called into an environment like um, football where you have to be at work practicing football and running into 300-pound men at 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, that, that, that doesn't seem normal to people, uh, and it could be quite jarring if you've never experienced it. And then you may have a, a very negative reaction 
uh, when you try to treat people who are work, that's their work day, workplace environment, like they actually work at a cubicle. The expectations are different and some of the ways you interact are different. So I try to incorporate that into the class as well. What sacrifices do you feel young professionals need to be ready to make if they want the type of longevity that you've had in sports administration? Got to give up that time, baby. You only have one life, right? Um, two things. One, a hard head will make a soft behind. Either you're going to learn lessons or you're not. But then two, you can't not be willing to sacrifice your time in these systems. Now, these systems aren't the best, but the people who still run these systems as of 2022 have certain expectations about time, sacrifice, and the amount of work that you're going to will, you're going to be willing to put in so that you can work your, your way through uh, a chain of command and operations. That's just the way that it is. And if you're a young person and you haven't experienced that, or maybe you've gotten used to a different workplace environment, I don't know that the world of sports is quite there yet. Like we still act like we we live and work in a meritocracy uh, where there's certain merit given to what appears to be work, even if that's not actually the case, like even if it's not actually work that's happening. Uh, you would put that alongside the rampant nepotism that you see throughout the world of sport as well. And sometimes it can be jarring, right? Like the the dissonance between those two things is jarring to some people because you'll have a group of people that worked their way up and they did it all the right way. And you'll have another group of people who like did nothing <laughs> and they are both at the same place. So the reason why that, that becomes jarring is something that we have to teach about. Uh, the reason we have to teach, teach about it um, is because if you're not used to that, you may have a very negative reaction and that will have an impact on the way that your career will go. How can young professionals make themselves stand out in order to be able to progress and be promoted within the industry? The best way to stay out is to have excellent work. Excellent work product always stands out above mediocre people, even if they look excellent on the front end. If the work product is terrible, if it's shoddy and doesn't work for the people who are the end users, then eventually you will outwork them. And hard work always beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. All right. You founded and serve on the board of MPAC. Who does that organization serve? So we founded MPAC to serve minorities and young people of color who wanted to work their way into a political system. When we first got, when I first got to Washington, D.C., I started to notice that all the people in all the rooms that I was in were older. You know, I mean, they were my age now, like 30 to 45. Those are the people in the front of the rooms and they were giving out awards to all their friends and they wouldn't even invite the young people to come into the conversation. So instead of us begging to get into their conversation, we found our own energy, went out and started our own organization and said, instead of us begging to be invited to their party, we'll just create a party of our own. And that's what we did, right? So we spent 10 years serving the Washington, D.C. community in the space of community involvement, economic empowerment, and political, um, I'm sorry, community engagement, economic empowerment, and political involvement uh, as our three core principles. We started the organization with the intent of going out of business in 10 years. 
either we would go out of business as an organization or the original directors would hand the reins over to a new group of people and then they would run the organization for as long or as little time as they wanted it would be completely their decision so again the same thing that we did when we work with the national black law students association my goal was to start an organization that i can build capital into both um political capital and actual capital, and then turn the keys to that organization over to somebody else so that they can then take that head start and run with it. And that's precisely what we did. Joe, your career has been full of service. What qualities make one a servant leader? You gotta be willing to serve the least of these, right? Like I grew up a kid, I grew up a kid in church. Dad's a preacher. And for me, that meant that we were always, always working hard on how we could serve the communities that were around the church. Um, and a servant leader to me is a person who knows that you don't always have to lead from the front, knows that you don't need to be in the front of the room, knows that you need to roll your sleeves up. And if it's something that needs to get done, instead of you sitting in your corner office and directing somebody to do it, you are rolling your sleeves up and getting into the line to do it with the people who are on your team. Now, what maturing as a servant leader means, it to me at least, is making sure that you can decide when it's time for you to roll your sleeves up and doing the work beside the people that you're serving with. And the difference between that and when it's time for you to go out and get those people extra resources. Right. Because it may just be that you need to roll your sleeves up and go out and do some fundraising so that they have the resources so you don't have to get in the line with them. Right. And it may mean that you getting in line with them, maybe wasting a resource of you going out and actually going to get them more resources to help everybody. Um, And as you mature as a leader, that's one of the lessons that you learn, like when it's time for you to get in and help do the work versus when it's time for you to go out and find some ways to help them do the work. Why is community service so important to you? Because we all got to live somewhere. I mean, I know there are a bunch of billionaires that are actively trying to figure out ways to get off this earth, (laughs) trying to figure out how they can build the best rocket ship that may take them to live in some um, place on the International Space Station. But for the rest of us that are broke like me, like we got to live here. So if I am going to live here, going back to my internal uh, desire to be a servant leader in these instances, that to me means I have a responsibility to make this place the best place possible for that. I want to live here. I want to learn here and I want to grow here and I want to love here, right here. Um, So yeah, that's why I do community service. How do you find the time to be this servant leader to be a husband and a father and be excellent at your job. It's easy. You just have to be intentional in the things that you're doing, right? Like, I don't really think about it. I get eight hours in a day. I work as long as I need to to get the work done or whatever the project is I'm working on at the time. And if you really step back and take a look at your life, uh, most people have a severe amount of downtime that they're wasting um, uh, in some instances, or that they use in ways that are not helpful 
to the goals that they said that they wanted. Right? Like, I know I want to be a servant leader. I know I want to work on the board of trustees at Texas Christian University. I also know I want to be a lawyer at the NFL Players Association. What does that mean? That means that I have to do all my NFL PA stuff so that when I'm focused on being at TCU, I can focus on being at TCU without worrying about my NFL PA stuff. Right? And I just, I got to do it. There's no, oh man, it really would be nice and I'm tired and I don't really feel like doing that. Like In my mind, you also have to build in the time to sleep. So when it's time for me to go to bed, I'm really intentional about going to bed. When it's time for me to wake up, I'm intentional about waking up. When it's time for me to go work out, I'm intentional about, okay, it's time for me to work out. The alarm went off, the bell is rung. The next thing that you need to do is get on that treadmill and go run for 30 minutes. You don't have time to sit and think and debate with yourself about whether or not that's what I'm going to do. Because when you do that, you're wasting time that you could be doing something else. So my goal in life is to live um, intentionally. Uh, and that is how I'm able to, to manage my time effectively so that I can do the things that are necessary to cover all these bases that you've heard me talk about. That's good advice. Now it's overtime. overtime. Joe, what book do you think aspiring sports administrators should read? Who Moved My Cheese? Ah, okay. Who Moved, <laughs> Who Moved My Cheese is a great book because the sports world that you thought you were trying to get your way into may not even exist by the time you get into it. That's true. That is so true. What app can you not live without and why? Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. And what does Libby do? I am a lifelong card-carrying member of public libraries. I support public libraries. I donate money to public libraries. And the Libby app is an app that allows you to connect to your local public library so that you can download electronic books for free, audiobooks for free, magazines for free. Wow. Well, I have so, a high school student, so I need to learn about this app. Yeah, so like when I'm traveling, I usually keep two, maybe even three books on Libby. I'm not just randomly listening to music when I'm on the plane. If I'm on a plane for four hours, I'm listening to four hours of an audio book about how to get better at something. I'm taking notes. Um, late at night, I don't watch TV. I can't tell you what channel anything comes on on regular network TV. That's a sacrifice. Sure, I'm sure all these scripted TV shows I hear about all the time, Grey's Anatomy and 911, and I'm sure it's all great. This is us, and I'm sure they're great. But you know what I'm also sure of? The hour that I'm going to spend doing that won't feel as good to me as an hour spent listening to an audiobook or an hour spent writing one of the three or four books that I have in production or an hour spent getting myself ready for a case that I know I have coming up uh, in one of my NFLPA matters. What social media site should aspiring sports administrators follow? Um, I think Twitter is still important because a lot of sports writers use Twitter to break information and news. I think TikTok is more important if you are interested in the marketing side of our businesses. 
because they're doing a lot of interesting things, uh, trying to figure out how they can do product placement, advertising, get impressions, mes- metrics, and and do more infer- in- interesting stuff uh, as they try to figure out a way to use second screens as a part of overall marketing campaigns. Um, I think Facebook is going away, mm. but they're going to turn around with the metaverse because the future of all sports is the metaverse. Your biggest costs or expenses are usually tied to athlete compensation in the metaverse with virtual athletes that don't require a multi-million dollar contracts that look <laughs> almost exactly like live players. The future of sport is headed in that direction. And um, if I'm a younger person, I'm learning everything I can about the future, including the metaverse. What's the best advice you can provide for aspiring sports administrators? Be sure you want to do it before you start. It could be a very long journey. And if you're not interested, you'll have to change horses midstream and you've lost all the ability that you had to pick up momentum on the other streams that were available to you. You don't have to work in sports. You have to live a good life that you feel accomplished in in order for you to feel satisfied at the end of it. What is your go-to inspirational quote? (laughs) A man with one ass can't ride two. (laughs) Briggs, it is always a pleasure talking to you. I always learn from you every time we have a conversation. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you, Jones. I appreciate you. And I thank you for asking me to do this. It's always fun talking to you as well. All right. You take care and have a great day. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.